Peshtigo, October 1871. The pioneer lumber towns of northern Wisconsin often utilized fire as a necessary tool. Controlled burns were often utilized for clearing land for farming, building, and laying railroad tracks. But on this particular day, the fires began to burn completely out of control. A sudden change in wind direction from the southwest whipped up many smaller fires into the deadliest fire our nation has ever seen, burning over a million acres and killing thousands of people. But because of a cruel twist of fate, the nation's attention at the time was turned elsewhere. And as Peshtigo lay dying, nobody was coming to save them. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode eight of Badger Bazaar and part two of the Peshtigo Fire. We are going to jump right into this. We're going to head right into part two. Uh, There will be about a minute or so overlap, one minute, two minute overlap from part one. So, you know, you can kind of smooth your way right into the second part here. So if you haven't listened to Badger Bazaar episode seven, which is part one of the Peshtigo Fire, please listen to that first before you listen to this episode, episode eight. Otherwise, you're going to be completely lost. Right. So uh, in part one, we kind of set the scene of what Peshtigo's kind of place in the world was at this time in regards to lumbering, in regards to the techniques that they used. That fire obviously was nothing new um, for them when we're looking at 1871. And we've met some people too. Right, we've met Charles and Frederick Lemke, um, and we've met John and Mary McGregor, obviously who lived in the in the sugar bushes. We've met Father Pernine and John Utter, who lived right in Peshtigo, and we've met uh, the Williamsons, who are in Door County. And obviously, we're going to learn the fate of all of them in part two as well. So, without further ado, um, again, there'll be about a minute or two of overlap that you've heard from part one, heading into the beginning here. But uh, let's head in right into part two of the Peshtigo Fire. Now over at John and Mary McGregor's farm in the lower sugar bush, John as well, he sees a sullen red sky over the treetops. It's not all that unusual, right? There's, there's red skies a lot. There's small forest fires happening a lot. He didn't quite get nervous because of that, but what he was nervous about after the winds died down, it was almost a complete abnormal calm hit, like no breeze at all. The calm before the storm. The calm before the storm, right? So he goes over just in case, just in case this is the one, and he unhitches all his animals, his horses, his cattle, his sheep, just in case, right? They can run free if they have to. Well, I mean, that's a big risk he's taking. I mean, he relies on those. That's basically his right. work crew. And just because he's envisioning such a 
nasty scenario he's letting them go to 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 save them you know i think he was probably hoping that they would stay sure but in case obviously he was hoping they would stay right but, but in, in case in, they if all hell breaks loose when extreme situation arises mm-hmm. hopefully they can save their own lives while this kind of very bizarre almost ghostly silence falls over Peshtigo and the sugar bushes across the bay in door county it was hell on earth door and kiwani counties uh, experienced a sudden wind change and it blew a bunch of smaller fires in the area into several large ones destroying farms whole towns anything that lie in its way the town of new franken was a settlement of bavarian farmers it was destroyed in minutes everything went up the fire swept up the peninsula into door county and was headed right towards a community known as williamsonville now, Williamsonville uh, was in Brown County. So on the other side of the bay, you have almost a, a convergence of Brown, Kiwani, and Door counties. And Williamson technically was still in Brown County. But the further you go north, obviously, um, you're heading into all of Door County there. The fire actually stopped at the canal at Sturgeon Bay. So nothing north of Sturgeon Bay was burned. Which, you know, also debunks the, the there was a theory for decades that many people thought that the fire actually jumped the bay from Peshtigo and jumped the bay. And that's what started the fires in Door and Kiwani counties. And that's, and that's not true. And we know this because the wind obviously was blowing from the southwest, which means that everything north of Surgeon Bay would have been burned up, which it wasn't. And we also know that the fires in Brown, Kiwani, and Door County actually started about an hour before the fires in Peshtigo and the Sugar Bushes. So that theory that the fire jumped the bay is not accurate. Now, Williamsonville was founded by brothers Tom, John, James, and Fred Williamson about five years earlier. And they, they ran a shingle factory there that pretty much supported the town. You know, everybody in that town pretty much ran that shingle factory, and the town was doing well. Right? It's a farming community, a manufacturing town because of the shingle factory. Well, and you're built, I mean, but like you say, nearby towns are going up like crazy. Buildings are being built. Shingles are needed. You need right. roofs on right. any building. So, so on the evening of, of October 8th, Tom had noted that uh, the wind had changed direction, which I mentioned, and that it was now blowing from the southwest. And that after dinner, he went outside and he checked on a fire that he saw was burning earlier in the day that he and his father had put out but he noticed that it, it was burning again. And it wasn't only burning, it seemed to be growing. So he immediately ordered several other men to hitch mules to bring tanks of water to attempt to put it out. Though within minutes, there was a, a, just this massive gust of wind knocking trees down in all directions. And that's when they saw the red reflection in the sky to the south. And they knew what was coming. Hell. The fire had just destroyed New Franken, and it was coming in through the woods, and it was taking down everything in its path. Now, Tom and his brothers did all they could to wrestle every person in the town to fight the blaze while attempting to get the women and children to safety, but the fire was now fully out of control, destroying every structure in sight. So the town blacksmith suggested that everybody run to a potato patch, thinking that because it was a basically a two-acre plowed area, it was a clearing, that the fire would have no fuel there. So he told everybody to go there, that that's where it would be safe. They had no other opportunity. Where else are they going to go? You can't go to their house. I mean, even though there was no nearby water, it's a a shot in the dark. Right. So before too long, the air was so black, it was so thick and hot that panic sets in. And with panic becomes self-preservation. Now you just have every man for himself. It's dark, right? Now it's nine o'clock at night in October. It's every man for himself. And, and you've, ne- you've never been through a scenario like this. Right. There's there's no, you know, large body of water to go run to. You, there's no book on what to do when your town starts ablaze. So people are just trying to keep their minds, but they're panicked. And So Tom Williamson made it to the potato patch. And later on, he talked about, you know, when he got there, he saw what he thought were about 35 people or so just huddled together. But it was so dark, and it was so black with smoke, he couldn't tell who they were. But every time the wind would, would gust, it would burn his skin. So he just kept running. 
He didn't know where he didn't know where he was running. He just kept running. He, he he could hear the shouts and the screams and the confused voices behind him. But what do you do in this scenario? You can't go save people because you can't you even can't run. See with, anything? Well, not only that, but the air is burning you. Right. Trying to run away from it, you're burning from the air. That's not even necessarily the fire yet. So now, while was, this is all going on in in Door County, in Williamsonville, over in Peshtigo, it was dead calm, dead calm. Like, it was still a normal night in the city of Peshtigo at the time. Actually, probably more calm than they're used to. So, John Cameron, who was a, a, another Civil War veteran, was sitting on the steps of the, of the Peshtigo Company boarding house. And they just, ate, they just ate a large dinner there. Same as every other night, right? The mood in the dining room was normal. Nobody really sensed anything out of the ordinary yet in Peshtigo. People were eating and drinking. They were having a good time. It was a routine evening. Ash was coming in through the windows, and it was landing in their food. But oh well, that happened every night. They'd, you they'd know, they were used that, to that, right? You know, but there was one thing that Cameron didn't like, and again, he 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 saw a reflection of a forest fire to the southwest, which wasn't all that unusual. But this one seemed to come with a sound. It was a low, moaning sound, and then the wind began to rise. Trees started to rustle, the noise seemingly becomes louder, and then the wind recedes again, and his guard goes down, and the quiet returns, and everything again is, is normal, except for that sound. That sound never quite went away. Almost like an alarm going off. So now he's kind of turned into watchman mode, and he's just watching in that area to see if anything out of the ordinary pops up. But what he didn't know, or anybody else in Peshtigo at this time for that matter, was that by this point, the sugar bushes were getting annihilated. That's where it started. I mean, for this area, that got hit first. Many in the sugar bushes attempted to beat back the flames, thinking that it was, you know, this fire could be put out just like any other. And it didn't work that way. So back at the Lemke farm, Charles was outside setting a ladder down in the well, and he's going to take his family down in the well, which is what a lot of people did. They're going to wait out the fire, so they open their well door, and they're climbing down the well. So this is what he's doing. He's getting his ladder ready, and he's thinking that they're going to go hide in their well because their buildings are already blown, are already starting to go up. Well, for any natural disaster, any emergency situation, this is what people did. They went down to their well. Or unless they had a, a basement in their right. barn or whatever. Right. So he's getting his ladder ready. They're going to go in the, in the well, and then he hears a scream from inside the house. So he runs in, and he finds his wife, Frederica, on the floor. The baby is coming. She's in labor. Perfect timing. So they had, obviously, no, he can't, they have to move, right? So he gets Frederica and their four daughters into their wagon, and he's hitching the horses, and before he could get in, Something, we don't know what, something spooked one of the horses, probably flying embers. I mean, there was all kinds of shit blowing in the wind by now. Something spooked the horses and they jumped and they knocked Charles to the ground. And so now he has his pregnant in-labor wife, Frederique, in the carriage with their four daughters in a runaway wagon. Made of wood. Made of wood. And it's running right towards a creek in which the guard fence had just been blown up. So Charles sees this, and now he got a runaway wagon, right, with his family in it. His wife is trying as much as she can to control the reins of the horse, and he's running after them. And hold the baby in. And hold the baby in. And what Charles doesn't realize at the time is that he's on fire. His shirt is burning. He's so preoccupied with all the other panic-stricken things going on, he doesn't know he's on fire. He finally feels the heat. He rips his shirt off. He singes his back and his face, and he's running after the wagon. And finally, a burning fence rail comes flying through the air and knocks one of the horses down, stopping the runaway wagon. So he catches up to the wagon. He goes up to help the horse, who rises and breaks free again. But the, now that the horse has broken the reins, so the horse is free. But in, and panicked. In, in, and Charles's panic as, as well. And in his panic, 
he starts to run after the horse. And he runs after the horse, and he's like, well, screw that. I'm not going to catch the horse. And he turns around to go back to the wagon, and he sees the wagon fully enveloped in flames. There was nothing he could do. He just lost his family, all of them. Frederick and the four daughters, gone. With mother, with child. So now at the McGregor farm, John was on top of the house, and he's trying to douse it with water because he's got fire starting on top of his roof. But the wind just became too much, and he got down, and, and, and Mary had already kind of prepared a place in a root cellar, putting blankets down and burning candles and stuff in case that they would have had to spend the night there. So they go down to the root cellar, and, you know, when you have a root cellar, that's thick sod covering the whole thing. And you got heavy insulation on the doors. And when they were in there, they didn't realize or hear the screams of their horses who stayed. They didn't run. They stayed. And the McGregors didn't hear him getting burned up. And by the time they would have heard him, the cellar doors were ripped off. And they were fully surrounded by flames. Because everything there was ready to burn. And they had no chance. So the McGregors were gone. So now by this time, you have Door County already burned, right? You have the the sugar bushes burning up, and Peshtigo is still not on fire, but Peshtigo, the conditions there are, are starting to worsen. Um, that distant hum that Cameron heard was slowly turning into a roar. The temperature continued to rise. Now Father Pernin, he heard the sound. And it startled him enough to get into action, right? So he, he starts digging holes. Then he's burying his belongings, everything he can. Uh, he also unhitched his horses. And, uh, you know, anything he couldn't leave behind, he put on a cart. And so he's taking this cart, and it looks such as like the tabernacle from the church, which he had in his house because he conducted mass from his house that morning. So he puts everything on a cart. And now his house starts going up. So he gets out of there. But the last thing he did was he went into his house to call for his dog. And his dog was hiding under his bed. And for the first time ever, his dog didn't didn't come. His dog would not come to him. It was cowering under the bed. Peter Pernin has probably the best known firsthand account of the fire. And it's called the Peshtigo Fire, an eyewitness account. And he wrote this after the fire. He was a, one of the survivors. If you want to know anything about the Pashtigo fire, that is required reading, really. I mean, it is a firsthand account in widely published. I mean, you can go to probably any library, definitely in Wisconsin, and get this book. And it's not long. You know, it's 50 pages or something. And he So it's just fa- facts? or is it It's just it's his experience in the fire. Just everything it's, he yeah, knew about just it. Just everything he went through. Um so he's he's talking about this, and, you know, he, he goes to get his dog. Like I said, his dog won't come, but he has to leave because now the wind is picking up and it's blowing his house. And he goes out the gate, and he says the second he goes out his gate, he says it's blown, quote, into space. Boom. Like it's gone. Like he just barely got out. So John Cameron remains on the steps of the boarding house, and he sees a whirling slab of fire come crashing down on the street. And then another and another. And now the ordinary night in Pashtigo is over. The fire is there. The fire is there. So Cameron jumps up and he yells as loud as he can and he's trying to warn all who was in earshot, right? And the wooden sidewalks become trails of flames and soon they're they're ash. As I said before, just to paint a picture, it's like a tidal wave of fire. Flames, the winds were so high and caused flames to reach 200 feet. If you can picture that. The fire created its own weather pattern. It yeah. was a literal tornado. Right. It was a fire tornado, and it is referred to that. Um, so huge trees are falling in all directions. It's crashing on everything that lays underneath them. Right. So now fire is raining down on Peshtigo. So now we have Door County burned. The, f- the, the sugar bushes to the west have burned, and now Peshtigo is going up with them. And as we've alluded to, like trees, bushes, clothing, hair, Things are just spontaneously combusting, just breaking into flames because the air is on fire, essentially. The wind was blowing so hard now that it's it's difficult for people to stand. Right. You know, like we said, it's a tornado. It's a it's a it's a tornado. Like like I said, ambient air temperature was seven hundred degrees. 
And flames were seen over treetops. Treetops. Right. 150 feet tall right. trees. 200 feet that these flames could yeah. reach up to. Burning coals and debris were falling in the sky. There were eyewitness reports of, and this is something that kind of stumped scientists for a long time because there's so many eyewitness reports of these black balls <laughs> in the sky. So there's eyewitness accounts of black balls and flying in the sky and exploding. And now, you know, what, what we know now is that those are likely pockets of gas. They were just pockets of gas, combustible gas, obviously, floating in the sky, exploding I've never heard over of that. people. I've never heard of that. That's crazy. Just balls of gas yeah. waiting to burst. Houses were bursting into flames, some of them being lifted right off the ground. You know, 16-year-old Helga Rockstead was seen on the boardwalk trying to outrun the flames. But she had long waist length hair, and it was obviously streaming out from behind her. She couldn't quite run fast enough, and the fire caught her hair, and she was quickly overcome. Another young boy was seen running, separated from his family, conceding his fate. He couldn't outrun it anymore. He knelt on the ground, crouched in prayer, and was wrapped in fire. These are all, this is all seen by people, right? This is not hyperbole. This is not conjecture. These are all eyewitness accounts of what happened on that night. And I mean, the the instinct was to run towards the river. So even that, people finally thought they could escape and just hide in the river, and they were drowning. Right. So it wasn't just the fire killing them. Trying to survive, they go to the water, and that kills them. And it's October. Right. Right. So the water so is the really water's cold. freezing cold. Right. The air is seven hundred degrees. What are you going to do? Oh, what a combination. You got hypothermia and you're burning from the air. A lot of the people died from hypothermia. Sure. Right. So Father Pernine, he now grabs his chalice and he's running down to the river. So he's men, women, children were hurrying about. He's Father Pernine has an excellent account of what it was down by the river because it was absolute bedlam. Because both both sides of the river were on fire. And both sides of the river are thinking the other side of the river is safer. So, and what Mickey, what Mickey mentioned before was the bridge being wood, but now you have it clogged with people running towards each side of the river. So the, the, the bridge is clogged with horses, carriages, screaming people, and the bridge collapses. Sure. Falls right into the river with everything on it. Well, it's made of wood. Right. I mean, it's, it, so it collapsed just from the weight, but there's fire screaming towards it too. So, I mean, that's your only ways out. We're made out of wood. Across the river. So people are, are they're wrapping wet blankets so, around themselves, and they're trying to protect themselves from, you know, the blistering hot air. And the scene is just, it's filled with confused screams, fear, dread, you know, and there's just this horrific rush to outrun the river or to outrun the fire. Again, you've never been through to this the river. before. You'd, there's no book that you re- read before this started going, oh, this is what I do when my f- city starts burning down over the top of me. So John Utter... You know, the, the former POW, he he does what he can to fight the flames until he realizes he just can't do this anymore. And his wife, Ada, was sick in their home, and she was in their home with their two children. It was a, a two-year-old John and a two-month-old baby, Eliza. And so John sees his neighbors, and they're running past his house, and they're on their way to the river. So people are giving up fighting the fire, and they, they realize they have to get down to the river. So John sees this and he, he's like, okay, I got to get, I got to get down to the river. So he takes his two-year-old boy, he's carrying him down to the river with the intention of leaving his two-year-old with his neighbors to go back to the house and get his wife and their, and their infant. But before he's able to leave his two-year-old son with his neighbors, he notices that his two-year-old son has already suffocated in the smoke-infested air. It was simply unfair. He just he couldn't breathe. It was filled with sand, dust, smoke, ashes, cindlers. The tie. He had no chance. And he's probably in shock. So he, even if he wanted to start screaming, saying I couldn't breathe, first of all, you're not going to hear him. Well, right, because he's gasping for air. And what's Dad going to do anyway? Well, and and when you have just nothing but screaming around you, right? You, know, you don't I mean, know where it's coming from. Everything's just panic. But. But what can Dad do for the son who can't breathe because right. of the air he's in anyway? Right. You know, I, what a what a miserable, hopeless feeling. So now he's struggling back home, 
in 100-mile-an-hour winds. We saw 100-mile-an-hour winds the other night. 100-mile-an-hour okay. winds ripped barns down. Right. He's running in 100-mile-an-hour winds that are on fire. Fire winds. Holding his dead two-year-old child to go home and hopefully get his wife and their two-month-old infant, and he finally gets back to his house, and his house goes up in flames with his wife and infant in it. So now he has his dead son in his arms, and he sees his wife and his two-month-old daughter go up in flames in their house. Everything the guy has is gone in a matter of minutes. Now, many people rush to the Pestacle Company boarding house for safety. It's probably the biggest, one of the biggest buildings around. So obviously it's probably the sturdiest. You're thinking, you know, again, this is just human nature. You're going to get, you're in a big windy tornado. You're going to go to what you think is the most sturdy place. Just get out of it. So a lot of people went to the boarding house for safety, including the family of the superintendent. Remember, you know, Donald Roy McDonald, who had, who had cautioned that he wasn't going to let any uh, artificial flames in the factory. So he brought his family, he brought his wife and children there, thinking that because the building was on the east side of the river that they'd be safe. And obviously that that was one of the sturdiest buildings that they would be safe. And he gave them instructions. Margaret McGregor McDonald was his wife, the niece of Mary McGregor, who, unbeknownst to them, is already dead in the sugar bushes. He gives them specific instructions, do not leave this place under any circumstances. Do not leave. So after the fire, he returned there hoping to God that they disobeyed him, right? They didn't. Upwards of 200 people died in that building, leaving, quote, only a heap of indistinguishable calcined bones and charred flesh, giving no clue to sex or number, unquote. Which led to mass graves by the end of all this because people were unidentifiable at this point. So in the river, it's horror, right? It's filled with people immersing themselves in and the cold water. that's in waters. the water. Right. People are, are you know, they're, they're immersing themselves in the cold water to save themselves from the wind and the, the air that's on fire. They're trying to, to cover their heads in wet blankets. But the second they get up, it's like putting the blanket in a furnace. It dries right away. And it catches fire. So the people were constantly throwing water over their faces or wet towels over their heads to keep them from catching fire. But once out of the water, it would go right back to catching fire. You have fire on top of ice, essentially. Flames would slither on the water surface like snakes. And so they were constantly pounding the water in the river, getting these, imagine this, Trying to put the water out. Right. Fire snakes they're literally on the surface the, of the water. They're trying to put the water out because it's setting on fire. And this is ice cold water. This is Wisconsin in October. So, like, literally you have fire on ice. I mean, ice cold water, if nothing else. It, this right. is, so, I have a pretty good imagination. It's just hard to even picture this. And just the panic and the hopeless feeling that's going on as you're running for dear life, knowing darn well you can't out chase it. Man. Peshtigo burned in less than an hour. So the fire continued its northeasterly pass into the UP, destroying more property, killing more people until it virtually burned itself out. Some of the stats, like you said before, 1.2 to 1.5 million acres consumed or 1,875 square miles, or 10 miles wide by 40 miles long. And from what I've, from what I've read, a damage estimate of $169 million, which they figured was right around the same amount as the Chicago fire. Right. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. The Chicago fire. You hear... I, I mean, think it was like it was like ten million or so less than Chicago, and I mean, it, was, it was just and it, ridiculous. And this fire in Chicago changed so many things in our history, as far as architecture and all that stuff. And this Peshtigo fire was at almost as much damage, and you didn't hear about it on the same night. So now, back in Williamsonville, before sunrise, Thomas Williamson was wandering around. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. He's blind from the smoke. He doesn't have any strength. He's 
lucky to be alive, much less, you know, being able to walk. Nobody else is. He's able to stagger up, but, at, you know, every he doesn't know where he is. It's hit, The town is named after him, Williamson. He doesn't know where he is because there's nothing left. There's no building left. There's no landmark left. He's in a literally a wasteland. It's just ashes and burnt corpses. So he's he has no sense of where he is. He's he's yelling. He's yelling and hoping to get a response. And finally he gets one a short distance away where he found a, a small group of survivors, including his mother. And then as the sun rose, they saw, obviously, what happened. They saw the utter wreckage. He went from body to body looking for his family. And then he came to the potato patch where exactly 35 bodies were lying, huddled, just as he had seen them earlier, and all of them were unrecognizable. Only 17 people in Williamson survived that fire. Thomas and his mother were the only ones from their family of 11 to survive. He wrote one account about it immediately afterwards and never spoke about it again, ever. One written account immediately after the fire, and he never spoke about it again. That's by far the worst thing that's ever happened, obviously. So now Father Pernin, as, as we'd mentioned, who'd wrote really the most detailed firsthand account, of the fire, um, came out of the river at 3.30 in the morning. He went in at about 10. So, you know, you're spending five and a half hours in hypothermic temperature waters. The air is now cold. Now it's kind of like a typical October morning. So now you come out of 30-degree water, 40-degree water, and you come into 40-degree air. He's freezing, he's soaking wet, his chest is tight from suffocation, he can't breathe. Right? His eyes have been burned, his throat is swollen. He could barely talk. He himself said he was almost lifeless, and he just laid there on the ground among ruins of the still-burning woodenware factory, which was just a pile of mangled iron and wooden beams laying all around well, him. All he's seeing is what's directly going on around him. I mean, at some point... If you can come to your senses, you think about all the other things that have been lost in this city that you love, you know, as you're trying to catch your breath and not die. As we said, the the telegraph line um, to Green Bay burned about three weeks earlier on September 24th, and that left Pashtika with no communication. So they couldn't t- they couldn't even tell anybody what happened. You couldn't pick up a phone and call anybody. Nobody knew what happened, and not only did nobody know what happened, everybody's attention was on Chicago by this time, because the entire world knew about Chicago already, right? They had, Pesciago had no way to call for help. The city of Green Bay, which is what, 30 miles away, 40 miles away, was already sending stuff to Chicago, 300 miles away. They were oblivious to, you know, the much worse fire that happened Almost right in their backyard. Well, even the Wisconsin governor had started taking action and already right. left with train loads of supplies to help people of Chicago, which left his 23-year-old wife at the time to take charge, and she commandeered a few of those train load supplies and rerouted them immediately to Pestigo because somehow she was able to find out and at least make some kind of impact on anything that survived. One resident of Pestigo who was a, a supervisor at the Peshtigo Company. John Mulligan was his name. Um, he got on a horse. He found a horse that was uh, alive and able to carry him. And he rode it to Marinette, six miles to the north. Uh, and Marinette, the fire went through Marinette as well. Marinette was damaged, but nobody was killed. Not nearly, obviously, the damage that happened in Peshtigo. So John Mulligan goes to Marinette and he tells his boss... Lumberman Isaac Stevenson, who was in business quite a bit with William Butler Ogden, who owned the Peshtigo Company, he told them what happened, and they said that they were going to have to send, you know, rescue missions. So they did. And Mulligan told them to expect about 50 to 60 bodies. (laughs) 50 to 60 bodies. Right. Right? So Stevenson and uh, a local newspaperman, Luther Noyes, hurried to Peshtigo, and nothing could have prepared them for what they saw. 
right? 50 to 60 bodies itself would have been catastrophic for a town like Peshtigo. But obviously it was, you know, they had many, no many times damage. that. Right. Countless bodies. Right. Incinerated clumps of ash, quote, barely enough to fill a thimble, they would find. Infants and toddlers lying on the riverbank, some with their mothers lying close or even lying on top of them, which was obviously their last living act, trying to protect them from the hot air or the fire. Nothing in the town remained. That's Nothing in Peshtigo survived. Nothing. Not one building. There was one house that was being built at the time, and a wall, like a partial wall, was still standing in that home. But other than that... Not one building in Peshtigo survived. Every house and every building was leveled. Trees were mangled and twisted and tangled and uprooted from the ground. People were walking around in, in, in a daze. They were like zombies. They were wet. They were cold. They were black from the smoke. Shock. They were burned. You know, and they're asking for my, you know, asking for their family members. Have you seen my wife? Have you seen my, my husband? Anything. Desperate. So Father Pernin struggled back, but he, you know, he, eventually, he eventually made it back to where his home was and where his church was, both gone, you know, flattened. And his, his bedroom, he knew basically his house by you know, where his bedroom was, and it was marked by the, the charred remains of his dog who had stayed under the bed. Now search and rescue parties turned into burial parties, Bodies were found all over. Bodies floating in the river, charred bodies, some only able to be identified by objects which were in their pockets, like jewelry or watches. So it just became a collection of the corpses, whether they could identify them or not. Just out of respect, they wanted to gather them all up and essentially make mass graves. There was one account of a burial party in in the upper sugar bush who came upon a boy who was about 12 years old on a small farm, and he was digging graves for the for all of his family members, all of them. He hid in a well until the flames were gone, and they came out and he found all his family members had been killed, all nine of them. And he looked at him, and he's dazed, and he said, what am I supposed to do in the world now? So again, during all this, the country's attention remained in Chicago. Marinette, by this time, was the only city that knew what happened, and obviously they had limited resources. So it wasn't really until survivors had to walk or horse ride to Green Bay to tell them what happened 40 miles away. It wasn't until they got to Green Bay to tell them what happened that Green Bay finally heard. And Isaac Stevenson also sent a telegram by boat because they didn't have a line anymore to Green Bay. And then it was sent on to, uh, as Mickey mentioned, Governor Lucius, Lucius Fairchild, who himself was already on his way to Chicago. And there, here's here's the thing, as you mentioned, Mick, his wife, Frances Fairchild, who was t- 23, 23 years or 24 old. years old, yeah. She was there, and she had, uh, there wasn't anybody in any position of authority left in Madison. They were all on their way to Chicago. But she was there. And even though she had no legal authority to direct anybody, she had no legal authority to tell anybody what to do She's at all. She's just the governor's wife. Everybody she gave an order to obeyed her. As a 23-year-old woman. Yeah, that's At a time where women's rights were not anywhere near what they are now. You know, she directed in, in, you know, a basically an impromptu relief effort. Right. She gave orders and sent telegrams. She sent servants and clerks and whoever was left around homes to Madison. She sent them door to door. To have her wits Madison. about her to even know how to organize all this and, and to lead this is amazing. She... She organized a blanket drive in Madison to give survivors protection from the upcoming winter. I mean, what an amazing woman to be able to take over after her governor, her husband, governor husband took off for Chicago. It's that's quite a story and, and, right there. What you said, she redirected a train full of supplies that was going to Chicago, and she stopped it and redirected it back to Green Bay. And again, they obeyed her. They didn't have to. They did. Made sense. I mean. But what a leader this woman was. And now, you've, you know, you think about it. So many of these victims, so many people, uh, these victims and people of, of from fires today die well after the fact, right? They die of renal failure or they die of exposure 
Some of these people died, you know, because they were starving. They didn't have any food or water. So there's no telling how many lives Francis Fairchild saved. And how there is not a school, a city, anything named after Francis Fairchild today, how she's not a household name in this state is a crime. Mm -hmm. Now, Charles Lemke was taken to a hospital. And for him, it was a pretty slow, painful recovery. He had a hole burned in his side. And he at first was told it would likely never heal. He had to live with that his entire life. He was so traumatized that he lost his ability to speak for some time. And when he did regain his ability to speak, he could only speak German. He didn't remember English. I mean, it was kind of almost a a bit of amnesia hit him in a way. But after months of recuperating, he kind of got his... his uh, I don't want to say his normal self back again, but he started kind of getting back to a bit of normalcy and he started speaking English again. But he said he, he vowed that he would never speak of that night ever and that he vowed he would never go back to Pashtigo. The memories are just too hard to deal with. But in 1872, almost a full year afterwards, a friend took him to Pashtigo to see the graves of his family. He hadn't even seen the graves of his family yet, a full year after. So he goes and he sees the graves of Frederick and their daughters, and they were buried next to their first three children who died before the fire. And when he went to see those graves, he saw Peshtigo rebuilding again. He saw the sugar bushes slowly coming back to life. He saw fences were going up, new barns going up, farm buildings started to appear, and even a few crops in the still blackened fields were beginning to be reborn. Beginning. A year later. Yes. Just starting. And then he made the decision, the hard decision, to go to his farm. We're a year later, right? He hasn't been back there. So he goes to his farm and he, he, he sees it's strewn with burned trees. Ta- nobody's cleaned this up yet, right? Tangled trees all over the place. He sees his burned up foundation. You know, the buildings he built with his own hands. The foundation's still there. It's all black, burned up. Scorched earth. He surveyed where his crops were and his fields used to be. And he decided to rebuild. He vowed to never come back, but... After going there and seeing other people rebuilding. Almost as a tribute, probably. Right. And not only did he rebuild, he remarried. And he went on to have seven more children... And his descendants still to this very day farm that land in 2022. The Lemkes. Pretty amazing. Still today. So now eventually the horrors of Chicago wore down and and moved to the back pages and word of what happened in Peshtigo started to trickle out. And sympathy and supplies started coming. Late, obviously. But when the world heard what happened, the world acted. So it was also learned that Several other towns burned that same night. Obviously, they heard what happened in Chicago and, you know, Peshtigo. But also in Minnesota and in Michigan. The cities of Holland and Manistee and Port Huron were destroyed by fire. Seemingly completely unrelated to Peshtigo, right? You know, but it was clear, people thought, you know, how do you have all these fires, as we talked about before, happen at the same time, you know? So people thought that it was some massive cataclysmic event nearly two million a- acres in michigan I mean, that's a lot of land that's even more land than in the Pestigo add to area. that the 1.2 million in Pestigo, right. right you know so we have multiple million acres of land burning up in one fire well not in in multiple fires in one night so obviously people are thinking something's going on here right so now for many years people thought it was a meteor hmm. like a like a meteor fell to earth right like the hand of God almost. People thought the world was ending, as we said. And even today, you know, there's many theories. I don't know if there's an official account, an official cause of what happened. I think it's pretty clear that what we think it was was the very sudden change in wind pattern from the southwest kind of toked up all these small fires burning in the woods, and it made it one really gigantic fire. 
both in Chicago and in Peshtigo and then in Minnesota and Michigan, where you had major drought conditions. Lack of water all over the place. And you had a fire that starts burning out of control. And like we said before, it creates its own wind pattern. And it creates a literal tornado to the, to the point where the United States government and military studied what happened in Peshtigo. And they used what they learned with those fires to create bombs that they used in World War II. Really? That's... Fire bombs. Interesting. I mean, I guess some good came from these fires and maybe some not so good. So on the morning of Wednesday, October 11th, three days after the fire, an old man was walking around the destruction in Chicago. He had white hair, white beard, and obviously Chicago is all mangled up. It's all ash. And everything he knew there was gone. He wasn't in Chicago at the time of the fire, so he wasn't hurt. He didn't lose any of his family members because, as Mickey said before, the casualty number in Chicago was about is between 250 and 300. Yep. Wasn't that high. Not, nothing compared to the upwards of 2,500 or higher in the Peshtigo Sugar Bushes area. So this man didn't lose his, any family members. But all of his businesses were gone. Everything he owned in Chicago was gone. All of his real estate was gone. He had a lavish Italianate mansion burned to the ground. That was gone. Everything he ever worked for in Chicago was gone. And then he received a telegram informing him of what happened in Peshtigo. The man's name was William Butler Ogden, the very first mayor of Chicago who then went on to build the Peshtigo Company in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Lost everything he ever worked for on the same night, 300 miles away. Two different locations and everything's gone. Now, as we, as we mentioned, there's a, a museum in Peshtigo today. Peshtigo rebuilt, obviously. Peshtigo survives today. And there, there's a museum there called the Peshtigo Fire Museum. Highly recommend a visit. There are some... There's not a lot of relics of the fire, but there are some relics of the fire, including the tabernacle from Father Peter Pernin, who found that tabernacle that night. This is one of the, there's a couple of miracles, that well, quote-unquote miracles, sure. if you want to believe this. So he, remember, he puts the tabernacle on his cart, and he's, he's getting out of Dodge, and he's running down to the river. Well, he loses that, obviously, and everything on that cart. When he's kind of staggering around, zombie-like, he looks in the river and he sees this kind of bright white shimmery thing sticking out of the water. And here it's the tabernacle. Which is a very, and, in the grand scheme of the destruction that was caused, it's a minor miracle, but to even find anything that was important to you. Not even a ridiculous. burn mark on it. Not even a black mark on it. And that is in the museum today. You can see it. It's white as can be. So then the process of cleaning up starts, and they send a man up to, or men up to get help from Marinette, and the cleaning up process has to begin, if you can imagine, looking for your family, your friends, your neighbors, and there's animals and whatnot. And the cleaning up on the third day, the men noticed this white box caught on the side of a bare branch. And it stood out so because if you can imagine, like the top picture shows you there how dark and black and everything is Oh yeah, is everything's going to be full of soot. So or, if you can imagine yeah. something way how it would stand out, why well, they went to it and they realized that it was the tabernacle from the Catholic Church. And there wasn't a burn mark on it. No, and when they got the priest and he saw it, he just couldn't believe it because there had been no water or fire damage in the contents and it were fine. So it, it is our most precious uh, artifact that we have in so the museum. the chalice was in it as well? Yes, the chalice and the host, everything was in there, perhaps even the wafers, I don't know. Do we know where that is? No. In the, fact, the, the whole tabernacle got lost at one time, but it was recovered. Oh, oh okay, okay. And so we carried it here during the summer months, and then the winter months it's kept at the Catholic Church. Do we believe that this is the original shawl that's in there, or is that? Yes. That's that they, is. That's what, they, that's what I've been told. Sure. But everything was, they said everything was in context. Look at that. There's, I mean, there's no water damage to it. There's, I mean, there's a little no. stainage to it, but not, that might not even bun from that night. That's yeah, remarkable, yeah. And that was from my interview with Pauline King from the Peshtigo Fire Museum. Um, as I had mentioned in part one, 
You know, there's other things in the it's museum. 150 years ago. Some charred up wood from it. They have a, I think some some dishes that have been found and, and a, a, a burned up Bible. And this is what he found. That is a Bible. And it's verses 1, Psalm 106 and 107. If you look at it real close, you can see sure, that. Sure, yeah. And it's kind of like petrified. Look at that. Perhaps that was sold us to some soul that afternoon. kind of fitting this museum from what I read as a former church building. It was the first building built after the fire, oh. which was the church. It was the first building built after the fire. Now, it was actually built initially on the other side of the river, and it was moved to where it is now, which is the spot of where Father Pernine's church was. Hmm. So it's on that spot today. Sure. Um, so it all has some meaning behind it. But also then in, in you know, talk about another quote-unquote miracle about the story of Robinsonville. And the story of Robinsonville is kind of over by where Williamsonville was, not far away. Now, Robinsonville has a has an interesting history where um, there had, previous to the fire, in 1859, almost to the day, actually it is to the day, if you look at it, Sunday, October 9th, 1859. So obviously in the early mornings of October 9th, the Peshko was burning. So 1859, there was a sighting, what we call, you know, what what is a, a vision of Mary, right, by a little girl named Adele, stated she saw a vision of Mary. Obviously, these things have been reported before. How do you know what's true? How do you how do you know what's not, right? right. So this, this was reported at that time. People believed it or they didn't. Who knew? But everything in Robinsonville burned up in that fire. Everything around Robinsonville, which is by Williamsonville, burned up in that fire. Everything but the church that was built there on the spot where that supposed sighting was supposed to be. Yeah, that's... So there's, the, the accounts are that the nuns that were there took a statue of Mary from the altar, I guess, and was um, holding it outside while the fire was bearing down on them. And the fire stopped at the fences of the church, around the church yards. Now, we know today... You can think that's a miracle if you want or not. Well, I, we're, you but, and I are both cynics by nature. But so. we know to, we know today. You know this, this isn't. You don't have to do a whole lot of research about this, right? right? We know today that the fire burned up everything around it. Right, and yet for it to just the, the church was still there. Right, <laughs> it got such a following afterwards by believers that it it's been designated as a national shrine. And again, we have scientific cynical minds who just kind of want to question everything, and you know. D- this it's unbelievable. Like you say, to, to use the word miracle when so much destruction and so much death and so much everything was scorched and just burned to the ground. Everything to use the word miracle is it feels a little inappropriate because of a tabernacle or a church surviving when the bodies around it weren't. But it, there's something crazy going on. The fact that it stops at this church and. And leaves it essentially untouched. It, it's uh, so in in December of 2010, after a two year investigation. I don't know how they do these. Who knows how they do these investigations? Sure. You know, right. when you're a hundred and how many years afterwards? Right. The Vatican, the actual Vatican, confirmed the vision that happened there, and it is the first and only, the first and only confirmed vision of Mary. In the entire United States, yeah, it's, I wonder, you know, how do they it's, confirm it's, something? it's called Our Lady of Good Hope. It's still there. Okay. It's still there. You can visit the church today. So you know, again, you can say miracle all you want or not miracle all you want. How do you explain that? It, right. Whatever the right word is for why it happened the way it did, I, that's just bizarre. And I mean, I, like you say, I don't understand the whole process of declaring a vision being real or not, but. I mean, it probably comes down to religious belief as much as anything. No matter what you believe or how you come at things, this is, that's just a peculiar situation that is quite unexplicable. And and you know, and the tabernacle itself. Again, this tabernacle is in the Peshtigo Fire Museum today. It had been in other places, but they have the provenance of it. They do um, very much believe that that is 
the tabernacle of the night. And there's not a, I've seen it. There's not a scorch mark on it anywhere. And everything inside of it was saved, you know? So again, you, you, you this is Badger Bazaar, you know? That is pretty bizarre to me. To say you the least. You can think of it what you want. Whatever the right word is, it's strange. <laughs> Just peculiar and hard to explain. It's amazing, actually. So if, if, if you're ever in the area, highly recommend a visit to the Peshigo Fire Museum. It is also next to the, there's a cemetery there. Um, and that is where, as Mickey mentioned before, the mass grave is. There's three, 350, I believe, bodies buried at the mass grave um, because they couldn't be identified. They don't know who these people are because they were, uh, you know, there's no DNA, obviously, in 1871. They didn't know how to identify them. They weren't recognizable to anybody. There were no family members around to ID them because either they were dead themselves or they're completely out of the area right. because these were immigrants, right? Sure. A lot of them were. Yeah, they were there without family, maybe. And there, you know, you can see a lot of the people that perished in the fire in the cemetery there. I mean, you want an afternoon to, you know, just kind of be peaceful and walk around. Go check out that cemetery. Go check out that museum and uh, and learn a little bit of, of a tragically beautiful day in Wisconsin history, that's for sure. To, and... and- to their credit, you know, a lot of these stories, people either don't want to recant or relive or anything. To their credit, they still will tribute to this whole horrific event. Last year, in 2021, there was a 150th anniversary event called Peshtico Historical Days, celebrating the community rising from the ashes and commemorating all the, of the lives that were lost in this horrific situation. So, I mean, good for them for... For because this is an histor- historical event that you know was one of the biggest in American history, the, the biggest in American history as far as fires go. So good for them for not for remembering all the lives and lost and all the other the, the, the horrible destruction that happened. And, and this is an essentially a natural disaster, but it's horrific no matter how you describe it. They do commemorate there. You're, you're right. I think they got a new marker, historical marker there, and I believe the governor was there too for the hundredth and the hundred fiftieth anniversary last year. Every year they have a fire, a fire, <laughs> God, I hope they don't. Right. Every year they have a celebration in Peshtigo called Peshtigo Fire Days. And I think it's the last weekend in September every year, kind of around Octoberfest-ish. Um, and it's, you know, and it's, they, they have bands and they have, uh, you know, things in the streets and uh, it's, it's, it's their way, again, of remembering what happened there. These people deserve to be remembered, obviously. It's not just, you know, again, you listen to something about the Peshtigo fire today and you hear stats, you hear about the, you know, the number of people that may have died. They're never going to know how many people died, as we said before. Well, it will I, never be. They were finding bodies two years later. Right. And, but just even the amount of, like, I read, and this is again speculation, but 3,000 people made homeless. Like, whether they died or not, their lives are just completely destroyed. Everything they've ever owned is gone. You know, that alone is so difficult to overcome. All your family members are gone. I mean, the destruction is just, these towns just burned down to a crisp. I mean, that's scorched earth to the utmost degree. It's overwhelming when you think about it. And there was upwards of 16 towns were affected. Parts of Brown, Manitowoc, Marinette, Ocano, Outagamie, Shawano counties, and and up to Doran, Kiwani counties, as, as Scott mentioned. I mean, right. It's known as the Peshtigo fire, obviously, because there was, it was lots the, of places. It was the biggest, I guess, city or town. It at got the, time, the worst, right? Of it. But a whole lot of people not in Peshtigo were affected, and not just in the sugar bushes as well. Like you said, twelve towns completely destroyed. From One point two million acres make up a lot of land. land. Yeah. Another another cool kind of memento of this is if you're driving on. Um, I believe it's Highway 57 as you're heading up into Door County. Um, there is a sign for Champion, the town of Champion, which today the town of Champion is the town of Williamsonville. Mm. And right off of the road, right off of Highway 57, is something called Tornado Memorial County Park. Very, very tiny. It's almost like a it's almost it's almost like a rest stop that doesn't have a building there. It's just a you know, kind of a clearing and a woods and, a, you know, some, some trails to walk in. But it's a tribute to something. There's a well there. And there's a, in that well, seven people hid in that well during the night of the fire. And two of them died. 
So the well is still there. The well from that night, obviously, is capped. <laughs> it's capped now. Yeah. You can't go down there. I wouldn't think. But, you know, it's, it's, another, it's another remnant that exists still today that, that illustrates this. You know, you hear 1871, it says, well, that's a long time ago. It's, it's 150 not that years. long ago. No, in 150 years, depending on the spectrum you're talking, but yeah, really, I mean. You're talking two human lifetimes. That's not that many. Right. A couple of generations. And, and the, our country is not that old in the grand scheme of things. It was right dab in the middle of the history of our country. Right. You know, and I, you know, at the beginning of this episode, I was, you know, we were kind of lamenting about the fact that we didn't have power for three days. I couldn't yeah. plug my, my microwave in. And I, I mean, it was kind of a big deal the last few days to, to go through. That is my point. It puts look, things in perspective. Look, of course. Look at where we are today, and we have the uh, we have the audacity to piss and moan when something doesn't make our day more convenient for whatever reason. Yeah, these are all luxuries that we're talking about that we didn't have, like even even running water or you know being able to take a shower. Oh, you had to go a few days without a shower, or you know, and yet with with all the technology that we have, you found a way to even able to watch TV and still do some of these things. So, I mean, we've come a long way, but for us to bitch and whine about the things we have to endure these days, it's just kind of ridiculous compared to a situation like this. You know, so and, and I will I will recommend that museum until my dying day. It is a poignant place to go to. Um, you know, I visited lots of battlefields in my lifetime, and those are Me two. I, you know, I highly recommend, you know, I think the power of place is a real thing. You know, and I think... I've heard the Holocaust Museum. Like, oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, I would put this up there when you really understand what that day was. Oh, it's horrific. You know, and, and you're actually looking at relics of that day. You know, there's a Bible that's in that museum that's all charred up, and it's, you know, it's opened to a specific chapter that somebody was, was reading. Just looking at that stuff today, hundred over 150 years later, it, like Mickey said, it, it puts things in perspective um, of what these people were going through and it, it really kind of drives home the fact that this was forgotten for so long. There are people that don't know about the Peshtigo fire. There are people that have never heard of Peshtigo, period. Right. And let's put it on the map. And I, not, we've danced around it a little bit, but I'm not very religious. There are some elements to this story that, that might be perfect evidence of religion and faith being very real things. As we talked about these minor miracles, I mean, there there's some very interesting aspects to this whole story, and it it's something that should never be forgotten. No question, I I I would agree with you. I'm, I am a faithful person, though, you know. And I look at this eyeing that tabernacle next to mangled remnants, and you're wondering how the hell did that survive? And not only did it survive, it's not even marked. There's not even a there's not even a, a, a a black char mark on it. Like it was avoided. And how did a church, when everything else around for miles and miles was decimated, that wasn't touched? You know, you can cast it off if you want. That's fine. There's no way nobody's gonna, anybody's going to prove that, you know, it's One a quote-unquote miracle. Well, and like you say, we're cynical people. But it's hard to cast that off. Hard to explain that away. The only way you can explain it away is coincidence. Well, it just didn't burn, even though everything else, everything else did. Right. That one church didn't. Okay, and I'm going All cynical right. in the other direction because there had to be something else going on. But Pashtigo did exist before today, and it was decimated, and they rebuilt, and they re- it's a it's a thriving town today. I think there's thirty, maybe four thousand or so people that live in Pashtigo. Um, I've been there many times. I've been to the museum many times. As I said, I've done, um, we're going to have another episode and talk about the paranormal aspect of Peshtigo because uh, as somebody that delves into that area, there is a paranormal aspect to it and people that live there believe it and people that have lived there believe it and I experiencing things that we experienced uh, believe it. A lot of lives were lost. So it it stands to reason that there might be paranormal activity and spirits that are still there. I think it's it's well overdue time to shed light on this. As I said, I think um, new media has been doing a much better job than 
standard general history books have been doing, which um, overshadowed it for many, many decades. And I think now we're kind of changing the tune on that. I think Pashtigo, not Pashtigo, Pashtigo is is being remembered now uh, as it should be, and it should you know take its place in history. And these people should take their place in history where they deserve to be, and that is being victims of the deadliest wildfire in North American history. Amen, brother. The sad story, too, of the boy that had his two little brothers, and he kept dunking these underneath all night. And uh, in the morning, when they were able to get out of the they both had died from hypothermia, and he had so big, religiously and vigorously kept them from getting burnt, and they were actually dead. Can you imagine that as, as a young man? You have to give these people a lot of credit for starting over because, you know, they had no place to go.